0: James chapter 2, that'll be page 1200 I believe in the Pew Bible. James 2, verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us, his people, for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. James 2, verses 1 through 7. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court?" Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray once more. O Heavenly Father, we come before your word now. We ask that you would give us the attention that is needed. We ask that you uh, would grant that your servant might speak your truth that your church might be built up and that we might seek by your grace and be granted by your grace to live in light of these words. In Christ's name, amen. When I saw a story this week, and I'll admit it wasn't totally uh, random, I was in some ways looking for some material as I was thinking about this sermon, but when I saw this story... I knew that it was exactly uh, what I would need to to make the point here as we come before this text. The first line of a story was, Blessed are the VIPs. Blessed are the VIPs. This story was detailing uh, the seating arrangements of the now infamous Hillsong Church in New York City, which was run, as this story says, the seating, who got in and who sat where, The story says it was run, quote, like a nightclub. Here's a a bit of that story. It says this. Scandal-ridden Hillsong Church was so obsessed with being the hippest ministry that it operated its church services like a nightclub to ensure that its most fashionable followers got special treatment. The church held its weekly New York services at concert venue Gramercy Theater, and we were told... VIP members were able to reserve seats while the regular flock, interesting they use that word, the regular flock had to wait for hours to get a good spot. One person who attended said this, they rented out the space every Sunday to hold their services and they had this VIP congregation with reserved spots for celebrities, influencers, and nightlife people in the know. There were probably 100 seats reserved for quote notables And regular people would line up to get one of the very few seats of these 100, but only in the back row. The normal people would show up an hour or two before the church opened if they wanted to sit close to this section. But a guy like me, I could show up, and he's an unnamed source, a guy like me, I could show up five minutes before and get a seat. I'd text one of my friends and, and say, hey, I'm coming to the service with a plus one. And they'd magically have two seats for me just like that. It's one of those things where they treated the church with a nightclub mentality. And then the story ends by saying there were plenty of other less glamorous spots available. This seems so silly when you consider it in light of the passage we are considering today. And what is going on here, of course, in James chapter 2 and what is going on Uh, in the hearts of people who operate with this kind of a thing. Let's try and get the important people and have them join our church or attach to what we are doing. What's going on there is that people, perhaps in their best moments, this is maybe a more pure expression, but they believe their ministry will have a further reach if they can claim famous people or influential people. ...as part of their ministry, but of course this kind of mentality brings so many difficulties. One of the chief ones is that when you so prioritize celebrity, notoriety, and attach it to the success of your ministry... ...you will do anything in order to achieve it. And of course celebrity connections will always mean that you will have to compromise in greater and greater ways. And what is so insidious about this is that it sells God short, doesn't it? Now, who is the one who builds his kingdom? Well, God is. God builds his own kingdom. And it also flies directly in the face of how we are told he operates. For he operates without respect of persons, so that it might be to the praise of his glorious grace, right? The weak things in the world have shamed the strong. The poor in this world have shamed the rich. God has told us that he operates in that way so that it might be to the praise of his glory, so that it might be undeniable that he is the one who builds his kingdom. So the question comes before us today because this is a church issue in the way that James presents it to us, but deeper than that, it's a heart issue, isn't it? Whether or not we will live by the fear of man, whether or not we will sell God short, or we believe that we could help him with the building of his kingdom using these human categories that we are so tempted to trust in. Worldly influence, power, wealth, and riches. We may not operate like Hillsong Church in New York or this so-called church in New York in this story mentioned. But why is partiality such a problem for so many? It gets to our doctrine of God, doesn't it? What do we believe about God? Does he need things in order to accomplish his purposes? Could he be helped along just a little bit? Could this celebrity convert give God exactly what he needs, the exact weapon he needs in order to build his kingdom? And are we tempted to think that or believe that because what's going on inside of us is the desire for the approval of man, to feel like we are being accepted or being influential in a world that is so often opposed to Christ and opposed to his gospel. Thus, will we operate with a rich vision of the glory of God at the center of all that we do. And when we say the glory of God, that is not only that we're seeking the glory of God in the way that he has prescribed, being no respecter of persons, but then also that his glory tells us something about his power, what he is able to do, and what he is able to do, he does on his own. He does by his own power, and he accomplishes all of his purposes according to what he has decreed. So will we live with that rich vision of the glory of God at the center? Or will, be, will we be taken by the glitter of the world? Glory or glitter? Our passage today continues the theme that James has established in the first chapter. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. Today's focus is of course the sin of partiality. So we have the command right up front in verse 1. Do not show partiality. Partiality, also called favoritism, you can find that used in in many different translations. Some say partiality, some say favoritism, same kind of thing going on. You see what favoritism is in the word itself, right? Favoritism. Live as if something or someone is your favorite. Children often will play this game, bring it before the parents, say, well, which one is your favorite? I was changing my five-month-old yesterday and I opened my eyes and her shirt said current family favorite so I guess that question's been settled in the Svenson household for now and uh, children always want to say that if they feel mistreated Oh, you always treat this person you always treat my sister and my brother differently why are they why are they the favorite when you show favoritism You treat certain people as if they are your favorites, giving them special and favorable treatment. Take a little bit closer look at what's being translated here. We can see more specifically what is going on with biblical partiality or favoritism. The word literally means uh, receiving the face, face receiving. And every time elsewhere that it's used in the New Testament, it is basically used to talk about God, who is not one who receives according to the face. In other words, he does not bless, he does not judge on the basis of what is going on externally. God cares not for the outward appearance, he is not impressed by the earthly status of a person, he looks on the heart. So we are called to reflect this part of the character of God. Do not be face receivers. Do not look at the outward things and assign value to someone on the basis of that. This would be to give people an undue honor. You see somebody with worldly, earthly status, riches, wealth, power, notoriety, whatever. And if you value them on the basis of that, you're connecting that to something that is not necessarily honorable. This is a passage... That does not aim to say that wealthy people are evil. That it is evil or sinful to be wealthy. And many people conclude that from this passage. Not only uh, Bible readers, but Bible scholars. And there's a whole school of thought that would say uh, riches equals sinfulness. That's not what James is saying here. Rather, it is to say that we must not be those who would say... That the wealthy are worthy of some special honor because they are rich. Or the powerful or uh, those who are famous are worthy of some special honor because they are powerful. Because they are famous. It's using earthly categories and elevating them to the heavenly. James uses then this example of church in verses 2 through 4. The stark contrast of someone who comes in with a glamorous appearance... Someone who comes in with a shabby appearance. So the contrast is stark, very obvious. The picture that he's painting for us: the one with the extravagant appearance is given a good seat. The one who is shabby and thereby, therefore, poor, likely, is given a seat in the back or even on the floor. This was a common occurrence in ancient cultures. Uh, people would be given seats on the basis of their status. And we even see that in Old Testament Israel and in Jesus' interaction with, say, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, this is not a a wealth honor kind of thing, although certainly many of the Pharisees would have been wealthier than the average person. But uh, this was more of a religious honor on the basis of their outward religious status of Pharisee. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus says in Luke 20, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. There's a parable that Jesus says in Luke 14 about this. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See what goes on with the fear of man with that craving the acceptance of someone on the basis of their worldly status or attaching ourselves to it really is an issue of pride. Now we see The way that this operates out in the world and really has to operate kind of this way in many ways. Think of something like a basketball arena. So when I was in college, I uh, was able to go to to lots of Bulls games. I was a, a big Bulls fan back then. And whenever I had to pay for my own ticket, I would be way up in the top. And you know the kind of treatment that you get there. You're kind of looked upon with scorn and disgrace as you ascend stairwell after stairwell. But I had a couple connections and every once in a while I was able to sit in one of those luxury suites. And it wasn't one way at the top. It was one kind of a third of the way up the arena. You took a special elevator to get up there. You would get all of this special treatment. There was this dessert tray that came around in the third quarter. That was like everything you could ever imagine. And it was nice and it made you feel very important. Now the world has to operate that kind of way for several reasons. People can, only certain people can afford those kinds of tickets. Uh, And of course, what is going on here is uh, in the desire for the approval of man, our obsession with celebrity is that uh, people become valued and fond over when they have money, power, and fame. Because those who do the obsessing, those who are trying to attach themselves to these people, want the same things for themselves. I can get something out of this person. This is why rich and famous people have an entourage. Most people treat famous people, powerful people this way because they believe they can get something out of it. And James' point is to challenge us directly as the church to not operate this way. And as Christians, to have a different approach from the heart that would then flow out in the way that we treat people. In the church, in sanctuaries... Why is it that, for instance, when this church was built, why is it that the sanctuary was built and in order to get in, you have to ascend seven stairs to come into our sanctuary? We paid for that dearly, by the way, a few years ago. And uh, certainly about ten years after our church was built, people started building it basically on the ground level. But why? Why do we have those seven steps to get up? Because it was thought that it was very important to impress upon people That worship does not happen on the plane of this world. So sanctuaries would be elevated a little bit up off the ground. To say this is not an earthly thing that happens here. And regarding status of people. What is the important point about that? It's that we all have to leave our earthly status at the door. Because we come to church. We come to worship the Lord. To have an audience with the king. And what you are before God. That you are and nothing else. The church is to operate with that basic principle and assumption. That we all come before God and when we come to worship him, what we are before him, that we are. And nothing else. James is challenging his audience, he's challenging us to think about the church that way. Earthly, human distinctions, notoriety. It fades into... The background it's really a test of our hearts in worship it's not only in church of course but in our hearts and that must become a reflection of our understanding of God's activity right in in verse one there's a there's a wonderful little point that brings us to the heart of the matter as it stands in our hearts James describes Jesus as the Lord of glory in verse one which is a unique construction It should catch our attention. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That doesn't happen very often in in the Bible. One commentator says this, The descriptive adjective glorious in this passage demonstrates contrast between the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the glitter of earthly riches. That's where I got that contrast, glory or glitter. So James is reminding us that though our flesh pulls us to favor people on the basis of earthly glitter, all that really means is that we have forgotten about the true glory of Jesus Christ. Because here's the issue. If you live from the depths of your heart with a true understanding, perhaps not a complete understanding, but a true understanding of the glory of Jesus Christ, of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, of the beauty of ...of Jesus Christ, then you will not live your life first trusting in these earthly categories of fame, notoriety, power, and riches. It comes down to what you believe about Christ and what you believe about God himself. A wonderful verse that many theologians and preachers have latched onto from the Song of Songs... Uh, where there, the groom is described as the chiefest among ten thousand, that often then is then pulled over to describe Christ. He is the, the chiefest among ten thousand. so there 's a, a piece of a Charles Spurgeon sermon that says this: "He is the chiefest among ten thousand, chiefest, that is to say, Christ is higher, better, lovelier, more excellent than any who are round about him. If you shall bring 10,000 angels, he is the chiefest angel, the messenger of the covenant. If you shall bring 10,000 friends, he is the chiefest friend, the friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you shall bring 10,000 physicians, he is the best physician, for he heals all your diseases. If you find 10,000 shepherds, he is the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. If you find one, two, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, all excellent, they must all give way when he appears. As the stars are forgotten when the sun rises in his strength. That is a beautiful picture for a world and a culture that is obsessed with celebrity stars. When the sun rises, the stars are forgotten. Ask yourself, is that the way... That you love Jesus Christ? Is his glory so supreme and so does it so outstrip the glory of all others that you yourself would be impressed with no earthly notoriety, no earthly power, no earthly riches? Whatever excellences there may be in others, they are all eclipsed by the surpassing excellencies that are found in him. I'd like to move to the, the end of the passage in verses 6 and 7 to show what are the problems with overvaluing these earthly categories of power and notoriety and wealth. James continues here to challenge what was probably going on at certain parts, uh, certain meetings and gatherings of the early church. With those who had earthly status would get this special treatment. And James says at the end of the passage, there are three explicit reasons why this is foolish. First, the rich regularly oppress the poor. The rich use their power to win in court against the poor. And third, the rich regularly blaspheme the God whom the Christians are aiming to serve. So what's going on here? Well, back then, that society was extremely disparate in terms of its distribution of wealth. It's almost impossible to us to fathom this as a society that has a a middle class, which is kind of a total aberration in the history of humanity. Hard for us to fathom the extent to which the rich were rich and the poor were impoverished. People had very little, little money and so they had very little leverage in their business dealings. So perhaps a poor family would rent out a small plot of land to grow some crops so that they could be fed, but the landowner would basically have freedom to do whatever he wanted in raising the prices and in saying, well, now it costs this much. And when prices then could not be paid, the rich would often drag the poor to court where they could use the money that they had to obtain favorable rulings. The personification of Lady Justice that exists in front of some courthouses, right? It's a lady... ...who has a blindfold and she's holding out the scales. And the idea there is that justice ought to be blind. And there ought to be no respecting of these categories. It ought to be the the righteous win out. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 19. But it doesn't often work that way. And it didn't often work that way in, uh, in that world either. I was reminded of this as the governor of New York resigned. And as there were all of these very credible, very believable accusations against him... Uh, in his press conference, his first response was, "As my lawyers have already said, there 's a problem with all of these accusations." In other words, he wasn 't willing to talk about the situations themselves. He said, "Well, the, these lawyers that i 've hired, they will tell you all of the problems with these accusations." So there was this problem: The poor were being exploited in these ways, often, not always. Not all rich people are evil, as we've said, but this would often happen in this society. And then imagine a rich person comes into the church. And the temptation then is to think, if this person becomes converted, think of what kind of benefits the church will enjoy. That's the temptation. God could use this person. that's wrong for several reasons we'll focus on two the first is uh, what is wrong in communicating this to the rich person himself if they come to find that in the Christian church they receive special treatment because of who they are in the world then the communication is that there is nothing fundamentally different about what happens here Uh, What you gain from the seven steps of coming up into the sanctuary of saying, you are here to have an audience with the king and you leave your status at the door. What you gain from that, you lose when they receive special treatment in the church. The second thing, the second problem is that giving them special treatment only perpetuates the problem. It would only say, well, the notoriety that you have received in the world... ...that gets you special treatment amongst the people of God... ...that is inherently good... ...and you should do whatever you have to do... ...to gain more power... ...to gain more riches... ...to gain more notoriety. So the exploitation... ...the abuse of the court system... ...stealing from the poor by these methods... ...will only get them better treatment... ...in the world... ...and then in the church. The people of God are called... ...to be different... Because we are called to live together with the conviction of who we are before God. We leave it at the door of the church. Then what about this point of blasphemy? They blaspheme the God who has called you. Well, it seems most natural to take this as intimately connected with the other things that James names. So the exploitation in prices and the exploitation, the abuse of courts but why is why would that be blasphemy this is blasphemy because to treat god's people as though they are worthless or to treat any image bearer of god because he or she uh, that that he or she is worthless because of their lack of earthly status is to be a scoffer of god it is to blaspheme it is to break the third commandment because it is to say that god's loving gracious, benevolent, redemptive treatment of people who are poor is an error in judgment. It is to say, if God saves someone who doesn't have earthly status, he probably made a mistake because that person really is not worth saving. That person is really not important enough to enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom. That is blasphemy and that is what many were doing at that time, scoffing at the elective and redemptive love of God. Saying that I am wiser than God. I can treat this person this way. They ought not to be highly valued of God. So James brings them in verse 5. Is really uh, the culminating call that he gives. So he says they're my beloved brothers. By which he reminds them of the fact that though they come from different backgrounds. They're all part of the family of God by God's sovereign grace. He says that God has chosen the poor and the weak. That God is no respecter of persons. And so to what do we attribute the makeup of the people of God? On the last day, there will be a people from every tribe and tongue and nation... From various different backgrounds or socioeconomic uh, stories, different addresses, different preferences, different levels of worldly status and acceptance. To what will we attribute the makeup of, of God's people on the last day? It is the mere good pleasure of God. The mere good pleasure of God. Because God did from all eternity by his sovereign grace choose to appoint some to everlasting life why does anyone ultimately trust in the Lord Jesus Christ the good pleasure of God because it pleased him to appoint some to everlasting life to deliver them out of their sin and misery to bring them into an estate of salvation and on that day there will be those who were despised in their earthly lives who were poor who did not have earthly power who did not have any fame, who did not have magnetic personalities, yet it was God's good pleasure to bring them into his covenant people. So what we learn from that are two things. The first is this, the reminder to us, God does not need anything to accomplish his purposes. He is the immutable, unchanging, eternal, all-powerful, independent God. As theologians say, he has aseity. He is who he is in himself. He does not need the world. He does not need certain people to accomplish his purposes or to glorify himself. He is perfect in himself. And so we remind ourselves, God does not need me. He does not need you. To accomplish all that he has purposed to do. And that can be a very humbling thought. That can actually be a very discouraging thought. But it also is attached to a beautiful thought. When we realize that in the midst of God's not needing me. In the midst of the fact that he could accomplish all that he would have to accomplish without me. He chose me. He appointed me to eternal life. He set his love upon me, even though he needed me not. He still chose to love me and to make me his own. The independent God of the universe, perfectly blessed in himself, has gathered to himself a people. So we stand in awe of the truth that God has yet redeemed, even though he does not need. And the second point is this. That not only does God not need anything in the universe, but that he also often is pleased to work above and beyond these categories that we obsess over on the earth as we go seven steps down. The categories change and the notoriety changes. God often works above and beyond these things in order to glorify himself so that on the last day we would all know who has built his kingdom. God has. Consider your calling, brothers, 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We ought never to communicate to the world. That because of someone's earthly status. That gives them an extra oomph to boast about something in the presence of God what we are before him that we are and nothing less and 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 nothing else he also chose us to be rich in virtue so you have there in verse five a call to faith and hope and love those who are rich in faith those who are appointed heirs of the kingdom uh, those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. So where is honor truly found? Honor is truly found in the virtues and the graces that God gives to us by his grace. Give honor to those who are rich in faith. Give honor to those who are abounding in hope. Give honor to those who love God and love their neighbor. Faith, hope, and love. May God work in our hearts to even grant us these virtues. So that being grounded in them, we would not chase the glitter of the world. But would as a church, as a people, show forth that we trust in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That we trust in the God who needs nothing in order to achieve his purposes. But he graciously makes us his own. And he commissions us to reflect the wonder of his call as we live shunning the partiality of the world's categories and rather live and breathe on the wonder of his sovereign grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words and we ask that you would plant them deep in our hearts, whatever is true, that we would live Uh, seeking you first in all things with the conviction of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that topples uh, all of the things we are so tempted to trust in to seek the approval of man because we think that that is something either we need or you need Uh, you don't need it for you are the independent God we don't need it for you have already promised our good and to provide all that we need We thank you that you have given us those great and precious promises. May we live according to them. In Christ's name, amen.